Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Hello, this is Charlie, producer of Ask Dr. Dawn. Given that it is Thanksgiving week, and Dr. Dawn still has a cold affecting her voice, this week we are presenting the show first aired on August 2nd, but was never published as a podcast. To those of you who do listen to the podcast, Dr. Dawn's cold is the reason she did not do a live show and podcast on November 15th, but repeated the November 8th show. We hope you enjoy today's show and have a happy Thanksgiving. Now, today's show is going to have a couple of health alerts, uh, some news you can use right away. And also, uh, we'll talk about AI and how it might transfer medicine for the better. I would call this segment the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have some interesting stories about endometriosis and prosthetics later on in the program. And as always, answers to your emails. So let's start out talking about uh, Shingrix. This is the shingles vaccine, zoster vaccine recombinant, adjuvanted. It's that adjuvanted that probably gets us into this kind of a problem. As regular listeners to this program would know, the older you are, the more inflamed you become when presented with a challenge to the immune system. Essentially, Older people need a break job on their inflammatory system. We're all achier and stiffer in the morning. We need a break job. We don't necessarily get better from infections as quickly as we, as a young person. We need a break job. But unfortunately, aside from some supplements, which I have talked about a lot in this program, I'm a great fan of high-dose curcumin, and you need something like 750 milligrams of curcuminoids to get anywhere with this. And I'm also a great fan of a couple thousand milligrams of fish oil. Get your omega-3 index or your omega-3 and your omega-6 ratio into the green zone, and you will inflame less. And it's the best natural break job we've got. Most of the ones that we have that are pharmaceutical carry a lot of baggage. These don't. So I had another patient come in this week who had, um, I'm calling it the Shingrix post-vaccination syndrome at this point. Uh, I was in one of our chain pharmacies and I saw, you know, you can come back in a month for your Shingrix vaccine and then you won't forget. Well, that was great. So my patient... um, gentleman in his late 60s took that advice and uh, came back in a month for his second Shingrix, and it knocked him for a loop. Uh, So we put him on a little low-dose naltrexone and some anti-inflammatories, a little Tylenol, hot baths with Epsom salts, and he got better after a couple of days. You can kind of sweat the stuff out. But my point is the actual instructions say a first dose at month zero, followed by a second dose administered two to six months later. You know, if you're over 60, you probably want to go with the the six months, or at least the four to six months. You know, I'm looking at side effect profiles here. And um, if you are over 70, you have a 35% chance of muscle aches, a 37% chance of fatigue, a 20% chance of headache, uh, sorry, shivering, and a 29% chance of headache. So yeah, get it on a Friday, stock up on Tylenol, and be prepared to take it easy over the weekend. Absolutely do not exercise. An advice I gave to a very healthy 70-something guy I saw this week who runs 10 to 20 miles a week. Well, I told him, you know, if you're going to get the Shingrix, don't run for three days because you do not want to send all that inflammation into your muscles. It'll definitely mess up your style. Our other quick tip 
involves, and this goes out to physicians and healthcare professionals too. Public Health Department is expecting a surge in MPOX this summer. Uh, let's call it the music festival surge. You know how we get a flu surge after Thanksgiving because everybody's indoors, it's gotten cold, and they're all breathing on each other and traveling? Well, uh, there's a music festival surge for sexually transmitted disease in general, and MPOX is the new kid on the block. Uh, Monkeypox is largely transmitted by close, intimate, personal contact. And yeah, music festivals, summer, uh, and the article I want to share with you is not the public health report, but actually some good news for older people. If you got a smallpox vaccine and you got that little, you know, nickel-shaped mark on your arm, often you're still looking at it uh, (laughs) all these years later. If you got the smallpox vaccine, you actually have pretty good resistance to monkeypox. The vaccine started being is stopped being given in the mid seventies after smallpox was clinically eradicated. Uh, it had some interesting feature, uh, features that allowed it to be. But these these are both orthopox viruses, and so those memory cells the, in your blood, in your uh, bone marrow they live a very very long time, and it turns out they can recognize impox uh, by molecular mimicry. Uh, about 80% uh, protection against getting impox, according to a study done by the Swedish Research Council. Uh, and uh, I just think that's really intriguing. Sometimes uh, an old dog really can learn new tricks. And speaking of new tricks, let's talk about AI. There was a special report this month in Medical Economics all about Dr. AI, and I found it a very interesting read. I thought I'd share some of the high points of this with you, and also a couple of other articles. Actually, you know, AI is on everybody's lips. We're worried about it. We're wondering, you know, what, how is it going to transform the world? And of course, maybe that's being a little oversold. But it has, as I said in the intro, a potential to be good, bad, or ugly. We'll start with an ugly, uh, or maybe a bad. No, I think this one is ugly. Uh, the idea that chat GPT basically makes things up, that it um, hallucinates, I believe, is the word. And so if it finds something on the internet or it sounds plausible, good grammar, uh, it may actually just take the word and associate it with another word that it's frequently associated with and end up giving you something that is just not accurate. It does not have fact-checking. That also has me worried because given the amount of health misinformation that's out there on the internet, I'm, I'm wondering what would, uh, what would happen if I asked ChatGPT about vaccinating my child. Hopefully you wouldn't do that. But People do go to the internet for health information, and it's hard to distinguish. Listen, I'm a well-trained scientist. I'm an MD. I've had continuous education my entire life, and I have a hard time distinguishing between correct and incorrect information. There's a lot of articles out there that guidelines are based on that are just plain wrong or just plain fake, and we're just coming to realize I might say because of the internet, exactly how much bad information there is out there in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. You really want to see something replicate over and over and over again, and you really want to read the method section. And I don't expect lay people to be able to do that. But at this point, AI needs a babysitter, a well-trained babysitter, who's an expert in something and who can guarantee that what's coming out of any AI-based tool has somebody needs to fact-check it. Because there's a high likelihood at our current technology that something's going to be wrong. We do need that human oversight. And so as you think about the emerging roles of physicians and AI... Uh, one of the things I'm worried about is we're so stretched so thin. Where's that oversight going to come from? And we can't you know, trust the devices, but we can make use of them. 
So we'll go through some of the good things now. And one of the sort of dreams come true for me would be a voice assistant so that I could create notes on my phone or on the way from room to room at the hospital or while I'm having a cup of coffee in the doctor's lounge. And those notes would sync to my electronic health record back at my office. This would really help me because I'm a concierge physician. And so my patients who uh, pay me my concierge fee get my cell phone number and they get on a special directory. Their name comes up. I answer the phone if I possibly can. And if I don't, I call them right back. So they have access actually to their doctor by phone or by uh, a special portal. But you're really talking to your doctor with with my practice. And that's very rewarding for me. And I think it's also very rewarding for my patients. At least I seem to have a business model here. If I could record just verbally after I get off the phone, record the the fundamentals of that telephone conversation and log that to my computer, that would save me half an hour, maybe long, maybe longer a day. So we're talking two and a half hours a week. And it would, you could do it in a way that would be safe and HIPAA compliant. So I'm looking for that when that product comes along. I'll, <laughs> it'll probably be a subscription product, right? So I'll probably subscribe to it. All right, so let's talk about some more uh, good drug interactions, okay? And weird, weird symptoms or patterns that don't flag for me because I've got a good brain, but my brain is not encyclopedic. And so where I get into trouble most of the time is with common presentations of unusual syndromes where... Well, let's let's take an unusual one. A patient comes and tells you that they wake up nauseated every morning and they're vomiting. And you say, well, the usual questions and what makes it better, what makes it worse. And what makes it better is a hot shower. Okay. Now, I know this one, but there's probably a lot of things. So I would put in, you know, the morning nausea and then I would put in palliative factor is a hot shower, provocative factor, unknown, uh, and say that to my AI, and it would pop up and say, you know, that sounds like cannabis withdrawal symptom. Ask your, you know, remind, reminding you to ask your patient about whether they're using concentrated marijuana. And that's what I'm talking about. But it could be childhood diseases, particularly in pediatrics. There are lots of, you know, unusual patterns. We talked recently about PANS, pediatric uh, neurological syndrome where people develop a uh, suddenly develop ACD and eating disorders and counting and this is all due to brain inflammation if you didn't know about that but you said acute onset obsessive compulsive disorder in eight-year-old child uh, with a recent history of stirrup throat or maybe the AI would look at the chart and say oh that kid was in last month with a strep throat And then you would know, okay, we're looking at a case of pandas, which is where you get pans in association with group B strep. So something like this, a sort of oversight for the obscure and the, you know, just a reminder, a ping, if you will. I could dismiss the ping, but it's going to make me think just a little bit harder. And that could be extremely useful. Now, I'm going to skip to another what I think is a very good use of AI, and that's in medical education. One of the things I'm encountering and in now that I'm faculty at a nascent residency program is that there is a difference in the medical students who are now doctors and going into residencies who trained during COVID. They trained during lockdown. If they got a chance to be in the same room with a patient, everybody was wearing a mask, and you didn't get those facial cues. You didn't have the voice nuance. Half the time you're yelling because the patient's slightly deaf, and you're wearing a mask, so they're having a real hard time 
hearing you, and you're going to miss things under those circumstances. Some of that clinical training that we expect medical students to get, and particularly the ability to uh, shift approaches when encountering different personalities. So uh, right now, they're working on a sort of simulations of different patient personas. For example, a parent or a guardian who's overseeing a child and is angry at them and cons- or, or in denial about a medical issue, let's say suicidal ideation to make it, you know, up the ante there. How do you deal with a patient who has a history of not following through on prescribed treatments or a patient who's uh, dismissive of all Western medicine and so on? So practicing with these various personality types, an angry patient, a hostile patient, an aggressive patient, how do you defuse a situation? This would also work really well for police officers, you know, training with a a bot who can respond to what you say with that personality would be extremely useful, I think. And we, in an era where people don't spend as much time with each other, um, we might want to include that in, oh, I don't know, high school or junior high, so that the the cognitive uh, nuances of human communication would get a little bit more emphasized. I I think that could be really good. Now, here's one that I think could be really bad. And I'm worried about AI in uh, automated medical coding. First of all, a a little lesson about coding. Uh, Coding is... Coding is putting a number on a disease and making sure that you've gotten the right number. And there are something like 100,000 different numbers. I have this book. It's a joke book showing pictures of all the different diagnoses. And you have things like um, bitten by shark. You know, Animal bite would be good enough. But no, this is bitten by shark initial encounter. And you might have uh, struck by lightning, but it's the subsequent encounter, right? You're seeing him in follow-up, so you have to code that properly, and it's just a number. But it's really difficult to get those right. AI could be very helpful because you could say the words. You're dictating, essentially, your note to it. It's got the history. It can process the history and say, okay, well, this is a follow-up visit for for struck by lightning, so we're going to use a dot x 3 at the end of this alphanumeric code in order to code properly. And why do we want to code properly? Because if we don't code properly, we don't get paid. And there's this huge back office dance all the time of the back office coming back to the doctor and saying, this isn't coded properly, you need to adjust the code. Legally, they are not allowed to suggest the code. So we get into this weird sort of guessing game with this person who is trained not to tell us. So it's like playing 20 20 questions sometimes. And they're like, nope, that's not going to work. Okay, how about this? Nope, that's probably not going to work either. And you're just like wasting time. So I'd love to cut that one off. The other one that I think sounds good is prior authorization requests. We submit prior authorizations all the time to get a drug or to get a procedure, you know, lots of drugs. It's crazy. You got, you're doing a prior auth for a generic drug that costs 12 bucks. And yet your patient, the patient's told at the pharmacy, well, you know, your doctor, this isn't covered. Your doctor has to do a prior auth. Either I switch the prescription or they do, I do the right thing or do the prior auth. But if you're trying to see four patients an hour, this is incredibly onerous. And unfortunately, doing it comes out of patient care time. And that's time in the room with the person that you're studied all these years to be in the room with. Uh, In a recent survey by the American Medical Association, a third of physicians polled say that prior authorization led to serious adverse events and delays. And I would totally agree with that. I've had a guy hanging out there with a potential colon cancer for a couple of months and in pain from colitis. And I have had a hard time getting him in to see a doctor because of in insurance issues. He's finally got, you know, he's finally in there and got an appointment. So at least 
I'm just not thinking about what might have been going on during those two months and whether we missed a golden opportunity to you know, catch something before it escaped, but I'll never know and nobody will ever be able to prove it one way or another. A good one. Speech recognition, we've talked about that. Speech to text, really good. But the problem with the prior authorization and the medical requests, prior authorization takes time and it becomes more and more dangerous. We're going to see AI used in prior authorization. We're going to see my my, the thing I would like to be sent to a doctor in my specialty, um, or in the case of, let's say, surgery, I'd like a doctor who's a surgeon, who's employed by the insurance company to review my documentation to get the appendix taken out, right? So they can re- agree, yes, this does appear to be appendicitis, I think it should come out. Now, if that takes two days, the appendix is going to rupture and the patient's going to be much sicker. You ask for an emergency prior auth, and then you sit on it. You sit on the phone for about a half an hour until you finally get a human. And by then, you've paid your time tax. And the deterrent effect of prior authorizations has been achieved. And so you get approved under those circumstances. Wendell Potter is an author who wrote a wonderful tattletale book um, called Deadly Spin. I read it many years ago. He worked as a authorization tech at a major insurance company. And he talks about how they were all told, always deny the first time for these procedures, which you, you can I'm sure imagine that these were expensive things that people were needing. And, you know, always deny the first time. That's what I'm talking about, the deterrent. Make them pay. Make them sit. Make them write a prior auth. Imagine now that we put chat GPT, which has no morals, no guilt, no, uh, you know, I think Potter was expiating a lot of negative feelings about his actions by writing this tell-all book. Well, you know, AI doesn't much care. So... Uh, I could see it becoming even harder to get prior authorizations through because you can't get past the AI because you're playing another game of 20 questions. And then when you answer those, you get another bunch of 20 questions. Prior authorizations need to be outlawed. There's actually legislation in the California legislature about this. There needs to be a revealed set of criteria to meet for a procedure. I'm sorry, we are not going to lie. We're not going to make somebody go through an operation because we want to. That's very unlikely. Have, you know, two doctors documented. But for goodness sakes, what we're currently doing is hurting patients. And I don't think it's saving anybody any money. So that covers uh, a little bit of the doctor's perspective from medical economics, but let's talk about some of the patient care benefits of AI where it really helps us. So uh, mammography. Right now, and this was a study coming out of Sweden, uh, about a million women in Sweden get mammography every year, and each screening is reviewed by two different breast radiologists, so that's called double reading. And there's a workforce shortage in Sweden and elsewhere. So there's a, it's a problem. So they set up an AI screening with artificial intelligence trial. They used AI to look at the mammogram and say, that looks like a high risk of breast cancer. Then they decided to see whether one radiologist rather than two radiologists could be replaced, could, with the help of the AI program, now that it had done its learning, uh, how good was that? And what they found was that the double screening compared to one radiologist and AI actually found 20% more cancers, but there were no increase in false positives, which is the thing we're always worried about. Uh, We work someone up unnecessarily, poke holes in them, stuff like that. The other thing is that the screen reading workload for the radiologist was reduced by 44% because, you know, one person could read twice as many because he wasn't over-reading his partners. Typically, a radiologist reads about 50 mammograms an hour. They estimated that to get through that 40,000 screening exams, it took five months less of doctor time. Now, there we're talking about patient benefit, 20% more uh, detection, and doctor benefit, 
five months less radiologist time, system benefit because radiologists cost a lot of money. So now they're going to take the step a step further and see which cancer types were detected with and without AI support. And of course, they're going to look at the cancer rate, and they're also going to look at survival. Because you've got to think about harm and benefit. It's not necessarily great to find more cancers. It's important to find them at an early stage, but you have to worry about the harm of false positives and also overdiagnosing things that are just barely a cancer and are not going to grow very fast. Those those edge cases like DCIS, where you might, in say a 70-year-old woman, just like you might in a man with prostate cancer, you might just leave it there and monitor. The cancer cells are old too. And remember what I said about inflammation. There's a lot of inflammation. Some of that inflammation is probably fighting that cancer, ironically enough. So I'm going to take a moment to read an email. usually do that at the bottom of the hour. This comes from Susan in Santa Cruz. And Susan writes, calcium versus Hashimoto's thyroiditis versus osteoporosis. Hello, Dr. Don. I've had Hashimoto's thyroiditis for a minimum of 25 years and just recently tipped the scale in an osteoporosis diagnosis. I'm 69 years old. I take 68 micrograms of levothyroxine first thing when I get up in the morning between 6 and 7, and I follow the directions. I've been taking about 500 milligrams of calcium along with 1,100 milligrams of magnesium before bed around 9 p.m. I'm trying to get the rest of my calcium intake through food I eat. I eat well, I'm a good cook, and I suspect the calcium from the tablets are tanking my thyroid production, even though I take the uh, the two pills far apart from my thyroid medication. Now, I think she really means her th- absorption of the medication is being affected by the calcium. A few months ago, my energy was fine. When I stopped taking calcium, I feel better. My blood work results are normal, and I get good exercise and home life. I've been experiencing fatigue every day and struggle to keep active. I'm getting about nine hours of seemingly good sleep nightly with an hour's nap in the afternoon. As a side uh, topic, I am working with my physician for a treatment for osteoporosis. So far, my body rejected Fosamax, but in the meantime, I'm trying to supplement as instructed. Well, Suzanne, a couple of things about your last paragraph. Not everyone can tolerate a bisphosphonate, and not everyone needs them. You need to get a hold of a copy of your latest bone scan, the one where you just tip the scale, because I think you're a 69-year-old woman with a T-score of 2.5. You want to check your Z-score, and you want to be very careful that uh, they're not exaggerating. You can look up FRAX, F-R-A-X, calculator, and you'll go to the, you'll see the University of Sheffield, I believe it is, uh, website. But anyway, any FRAX calculator will do. You fill that in. They're going to want to know what machine. They're going to want to know about smoking and steroid use, and all those sorts of things. And then they'll give you a probability score. And you probably could use an agent if your FRAX score is, say, 2.7, if your T-score is 2.7 or 2.8. But if you can't tolerate treatment, then think about alternative treatments. Uh, For example, there is an agent called Evista, which is a estrogen-like compound that will help you strengthen your bones and help calcium get into your bones. That plus definitely you need to be on some vitamin K2 at least 200 micrograms of MK7. You'll have to read the back of the bottle, but that's important. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, it's very far-fetched that the calcium would be interfering with your thyroid hormone absorption from the stomach when you take it so far apart. It really is far-fetched. So I was struck by thinking, you know, when she takes calcium, she gets fatigued. What if her calcium is actually above normal? So when you said your blood test was normal, I suspect you meant your thyroid tests, but I think you should get your serum calcium checked because an elevated serum calcium 
slugs makes the brain sluggish, basically. So you'll feel tired, you'll feel low energy, you'll perceive yourself to have those things. It's not affecting your muscles directly, it's affecting your brain. So if calcium is high, um, or borderline high, you know, right below at the upper threshold, I ask the doctor to get an intact parathyroid hormone. Because I'm really wanting to make sure that you don't actually have a second medical condition and you're just, when you take calcium, it's actually triggering something because of that. Now, I got one more AI for you, and we are segueing into women's health. Uh, this is a review article. I'll read the title sentence. Advances in computational science are delivering insights into how to improve maternal mortality and deliver better therapies to breast cancer. So women are half the world's population, but research on their major conditions have lagged behind men forever. And part of that's because of uh, the fact that we have periods, and so we are not very good lab rats. There's a lot of noise, let's put it that way. Uh, Also, if you're testing a drug, you don't want anybody who could possibly get pregnant. And so that's another difference. It'll be really interesting to uh, think about all of the research on men and women, uh, such as it is, and how do we take that and apply that as we have people who aren't really, they don't identify as excess and XX, and they may have changed their hormones. We are, medically, we really need to do a lot of research to be sure that the healthcare that we're delivering is appropriate for the individual. And we got miles to go before we sleep on this one. But maternal death in childbirth, one study looked at, well, how many different variables are there? And it was like hundreds of thousands of different parameters that could affect the health. And it was very high-performing computers, you know, supercomputers. And it took them a year to look at all of the factors that affect women's health. And what we're finding is that during pregnancy and labor, it, doctors normally use a tocodynamometer, that little beeping, that little clicking or beeping thing that looks at the strength of the contractions. But researchers have gone much better, and they've got something called an electromyometrial imaging system. It's basically a plate with 250 electrodes, and it records a half million bits of data. And you get real-time visual images of the uterus as it experiences each contraction. They call this a digital twin. And when they looked at 55 different women with the device, they were able to see how different parts of the uterus activate with a contraction. And this is allowing us to see whether the labor is progressing properly and also whether there are problems or issues and catch them very early. It's also being used to study uterine issues like endometriosis, painful menstruation, uh, and fertility. These devices, these AI-driven devices, are processors. And looking at the placenta is a very useful thing. They are, they're essentially modeling the placenta and the properties. And we can't do this research uh, on humans. We have to do simulations, but the placenta is really a mysterious organ to us. And we have an emerging problem with high maternal mortality in this country. It's not dropping. It's actually increased in the last decade. And a lot of that is from preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure and a change in the way the kidney handles fluids. Ultimately, that can lead to seizures. And... Another place where this technology is going to be helpful is in premature rupture of membranes. So in about 3% of women, the bag, the the sac, breaks, and the fluid flows out. And that's a problem because the baby loses cushioning. But it's also a problem because without that fluid, there's an open channel to the outside world, and, and the uh, the fetus doesn't have a an immune system to defend itself. So infection of the uterus often leads to early uh, C-sections because we got to get the baby out once it, once there's infection. 
But using this technology, they can look at the amniotic sac and they can identify areas that are showing strain. And they can also see tiny tears that might trigger a rupture. Think about, you know, run in a stocking, right? You might have a run in a stocking and it's, you know, not that big deal. I mean, I'm obviously an old-fashioned girl when it comes to talking about nylons. But that's it, it starts out as a little hole and then it gets tugged a certain way and it just creates this big ladder in... And if you're a little chubby, uh, you know, your bits poke out and it feel it looks very unflattering. So that was a metaphor, folks. I hope you appreciated it. The point is, AI can really contribute at the research level. And these new devices and the way they're driven can make a very big difference in women's health. And you know why? Because there's more women scientists this generation than there were a generation ago. And they're taking their science and going after women's health uh, problems. And they're figuring out how to do it. And I just want to say sisterhood is powerful and thank you for what you do. So a couple of articles about endometriosis now. I found it very interesting. Study links cadmium levels in women's urines to endometriosis. Uh, So endometriosis is a gynecologic condition in which tissue that looks like the lining of the uterus, in fact, it is identical to the endometrium, appears outside the uterus. This can get on your bladder, it can get on your abdominal wall, it can attach to your intestines. And every month when you go through your monthly cycle, it bleeds because it's responding to the same hormonal signals that the inside of the uterus is. Blood goes everywhere. As a result, you're getting intra-abdominal bleeding, which is excruciatingly painful, very debilitating, and some women have pain throughout the month. Uh, Also problems with bowel function, bladder function, you get the idea. It also affects fertility. So it affects everything, daily activity, work productivity, personal relationships, and it is an understudied condition. So researchers at the uh, Michigan State University of Human Medicine uh, did some research looking at contributory factors, and they thought, hmm, let's check cadmium levels. You see, cadmium is a toxic metal. It's used in paints, it's used in pigments, it's used in industrial processing, but it's also an estrogen mimic, just like BPA is an estrogen mimic. It's a metalloestrogen. So it can, it can actually attach to the estrogen receptor and mimic it, make it fool the estrogen receptor into thinking estrogen sitting on it. And people often get cadmium by breathing cigarette smoke. So that's one of your passive smoking issues. And if you eat contaminated food like spinach and lettuce and kale, one of the least healthy things about kale and leafy greens is that they like to concentrate cadmium from the soil. So you better know where they came from. So this study looked at cadmium and they was a long study. They looked at a population between 1999 and 2006, aged uh, 20 to 54, uh, 41% participants. And this is important. It was a big number. So they were able to divide cadmium levels into four classes, you know, lowest uh, and the highest, and then two in between. And those are called quartiles. And what they found was that women in the second and third quartiles were twice as likely to have endometriosis than those in the lowest quartile. And they also found that if you were in the fourth quartile, you had a 60% increased prevalence. So obviously that that difference between the second and the first is key. And I have not pulled the study, so I don't know what the actual quartiles were in terms of what the dose range was. But urinary cadmium is really easy to measure. Uh, there are tests available commercially that run less than $100, and you just in a cup and send it off to the lab and then give you your concentrations. I think this used all the time after chelation for lead poisoning, for example. So these are available at commercial labs. And 
I think that the idea that metal toxicity could be a contributing factor for endometriosis dovetails really well with the demographics because people who are poorer and also people who are uh, African-American have higher levels of endometriosis. And historically, that population ends up in areas with more industrial pollution. And of course, cadmium, as I said, smoking. Uh, although I, th- I don't know that smoking rates are in any different across racial groups, and I'm not suggesting uh, anything like that. I don't know. That, I don't know. Other researchers are looking at endometriosis, however. This study was done in Japan, and it looked at uh, endometriosis and infection by bacteria. So, they, sh- they found, this was a study of 155 women, they found that the bacteria genus Fusobacterium was found in the uteruses of about 64% of those with endometriosis and about 7% of those who don't have endometriosis. Now, this is correlation. We don't know if it's cause or effect yet, but this is how science works. First, you find something and go, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what would happen if I used some mice and infected their uteruses with fusobacterium, and would they develop something resembling endometriosis? And in fact, they did. So the microbiome of the inside of the uterus is actually a factor in uh, endometriosis, or at least there's strong evidence in that direction. This was published in the June 14th Science Translational Medicine, if you want to go look it up. And the, uh, let's see, who was the chief author author here? Um, It looks like someone named Courtois was one of the people on the paper, C-O-U. R-T-O-I-S. What exactly is going on with endometriosis? We don't know, but it seems like it's probably the stem cells getting loose through the fallopian tubes, which if you have a, let's say, a university level of understanding of anatomy, you probably know that the ovaries and the fallopian tubes are kissing cousins, and the fallopian tubes have these feathery membranes that touch the ovaries, but don't attach to them. The egg has to come off the ovary and go into that area. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it gets into the fallopian tube, but then gets stuck. They call that an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, Sometimes you get an ectopic pregnancy grow um, in the abdomen. And those are generally non, uh, those, those are generally non viable because there's just not enough blood supply in the placenta and of course, it's major abdominal surgery to get get that out. I'm wondering the states that outlaw abortion, uh, where you have something like that, are they just not going to operate because, well, it's still it's still a baby. I don't I don't know. I I don't think it's happened very often yet, but uh, because it's so rare. But that, my dear, is going to be crazy. Okay, so. Endometriosis hurts. You've heard that. They looked at giving the mice uh, endometriosis, and they were successful in doing that. So they actually did that once, with, and they followed Koch's postulates, which basically is how you prove something's an infectious disease. So they, they made their endometriosis mal- mice, and then they went into the uterus of the endometriosis mice, and they took some tissue and then they injected it into the abdominal cavity of another mouse and endometriosis grew there. Uh, But treating the mice with antibiotics administered into the vagina reduced the development, stopped it in some cases, and shrank the number of lesions. So now we have a kind of therapeutic course. Maybe we could put metronidazole, flagyl, or chloramphenicol into the vagina, uh, maybe into the uterus. That is a potential therapy, and the Japanese are following up on that. The study is currently at work. This research is extremely promising, but it made me wonder. We know that 
those of us who know the microbiome know that different bacteria use different metals for their metabolism. They use them as cofactors. And there are certain bacteria, for example, that sequester iron, and they can cause an iron uh, deficiency in individuals with relatively low iron diets because they're hungered for that iron and they grab it all up before it can be absorbed properly. So what about cadmium? Could fusobacterium need cadmium for its metabolism? Could it be sequestering cadmium and thus raising the urine levels of cadmium in the women in the previous study? Everything's connected in biology and certainly in a complex biological system like a human. And the microbiome, another complex biological system, is sitting inside of us, all of us, and doing its own thing and producing metabolites that might help us or might hurt us. And that is just a super intriguing, uh, a super intriguing idea. So I guess I'm going to segue to microbiome stories and off of tech, because I've got a couple of them. Let's start with um, kombucha. Right, We've all seen the proliferation in the mini markets of all those different flavored kombuchas. And people with type 2 diabetes who drank kombucha for four weeks actually had lower fasting glucose levels uh, compared to when they uh, consumed a similar tasting placebo beverage. It was actually therapeutic. So this finding was from what's called a feasibility trial. It was small. And it wasn't a double-blind study. What it was was a crossover study. So what that means is people did the diet for four weeks, and then they were, and then they flipped to the other group, and they did the kombucha look-alike, the placebo kombucha, for four weeks, and their blood sugar levels were measured. I think that's pretty good science because I I don't really think that uh, the placebo effect is going to have much of an effect on. Uh, on blood sugar levels, but just, you know, maybe pain uh, and blood pressure, but yeah, not not blood sugar. It's not a mind-body thing at that level. Uh, kombucha is basically a mixture of bacteria and yeasts, and it goes all the way back to 200 BC and it, it in China. It's been used for a very long time. It's considered a Chinese medicine. And it's uh, started in the U.S. about in the 1990s, and people have toted it on the internet, well, yeah, I have more energy and my immunity is better and reduced cr- food cravings and inflammation. But not much science had been done until very recently. So what we see is one small study of people, and it's, it's somewhat persuasive. So the fasting blood glucose levels went down substantially. They, they went down from 164 to 116 fasting. Now, normal is 70 to 30. And if you're fasting and you're healthy, it should really be below 90. We use 100 as our cutoff to worry. So what's in kombucha? Lactic acid bacteria, acetic acid bacteria, and a yeast called decara. And they're all present in roughly the same um, ratio. That's good. They used uh, one craft kombucha. They also looked at different studies of kombucha in different manufacturers, very subtle differences, but what was there and the proportions were highly reproducible. So if you're diabetic and you're trying and you're having trouble with that blood sugar, uh, you might give it a try for a month and see what your numbers are. It certainly won't hurt you. It's a very low calorie beverage and it's probably really good for your microbiome in other ways. I'm thinking it's an anti-inflammatory connection, but that's just me. You know, I'm all about inflammation. Another story about gut bacteria, irregular sleep patterns. I read you an article about six months ago about shift workers and the difference in their microbiome. And most of the recent research has looked at weight gain, heart problems, and diabetes and cancer in shift workers because, and there is a risk if you are working a midnight to seven during the week, and then on the weekend you shift back to, let's say, nine or ten because you've got small kids and you're not going to have a chance at sleeping later than that. Uh, to you know, 
struggling to get to bed at 10.30 or 11 uh, because you're going to have to wake up or staying up until midnight and then going to work with a bunch of coffee or provigil. Yeah, that is going to have a bad effect on your microbiome. It turns out it doesn't have to be major disruptions like the dramatic stuff I've just described. There's even small differences in sleep timing across the week can be uh, linked to differences in the gut bacteria species. And the composition of these bacteria species is that those people who have what they're calling social sleep disruption, not work-related sleep disruption, got three of the worst bacteria rising, the ones that are associated with disease, in the social jet lag group. Uh, These are associated with diabetes, obesity, inflammation, and cardiovascular risk, which is like the standard menu of what we die of. So how much sleep does it take? They, They looked at glucose measurements, the blood, stool, and gut microbiome, and they had two groups, regular sleep schedule people and people who basically stayed up late on the weekends and, you know, ate out, partied, stayed up late watching a movie, whatever, snacking. What they found was a 90-minute difference in the timing of the midpoint of sleep. So if you if you think about it, the halfway point, if I go to bed at midnight and I wake up at 6, then the midpoint of that is 3 a.m. So if 3 a.m. shifted from, let's say, during the week, that midpoint was actually uh, 90 minutes earlier because I went to bed at 9 p.m. because I have an early morning, then that 90-minute shift is enough to make the difference for your sleep and associated with these adverse gut microbiome compositions. So that all that old, like old-fashioned Marcus Welby medical advice, do it, go ahead and uh, have a regular sleep and wake-up time? Well, it might be just what you need to live longer and stay healthy. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.